0: Whether it's somebody is creative in a way that isn't obviously original, it's still creative and it still counts. It's why one of my little pet peeves is when popular articles or books use creativity and genius interchangeably. They're not the same. We aren't geniuses. Not everybody can be a genius. You can't just tap into your inner genius. That's kind of crap. But all of us can be creative. All of us can tap into our inner creator.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood.
2: And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett.
1: This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast.
2: On this podcast, we'll be talking about various creativity topics and how they relate to the fields of education.
1: We'll be talking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and exploring new perspectives of creativity.
2: All with a goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers, administrators, and emerging scholars with the information they need to infuse creativity into teaching and learning.
1: So let's begin. Welcome back to our Double Expresso episode with Dr. James Kaufman. In the first part of our interview, we explored the various creativity topics related somewhat to the book, but if we confess, we got a little bit sidetracked with our conversation around artificial intelligence. So in the second part of our interview, we're going to dig a lot more further into the concept of the creative advantage and other concepts that James highlights in his book.
2: So, James, in your new book, The Creativity Advantage, you unpack a new model that explores five areas, self-insight, healing, connection, drive, and legacy. So we want to tap into each of these a little bit with you. But before we do, I want to know what led you to develop this model.
0: In the past, I've done different consulting, working with school systems or organizations or, or things like that. And it would tend to be the same pattern where there would be one person who was really excited about creativity and I would be brought in and I would meet people and we would begin stuff. And invariably, and sometimes it would be a year, sometimes it would be three years, but that person would eventually leave. And then I would never hear from that organization, school, district, whatever again. And I realized Creativity researchers aren't always great at talking about why people should care. We assume it's important because we care about it and because most people say they do. I mean, I remember years ago, I was giving a job talk and somebody in the audience asked something to the effect of, well, we know that if you were to get a grant and study reading or motivation. It would do all of these things. But if you were to get a grant to be able to study creativity, what what would that do? What would be the point? And I, I totally flubbed the question, didn't get the job, because it was something I'd never really thought about having to bend creativity as being important. And it got me thinking. I did a paper with Marie Thorgiard where we just looked Do we look at creativity as predicting other stuff? And it turns out, no, we we really don't. Most studies either see how is creativity related to another construct or what predicts creativity. There's very little on what does creativity predict. If we look at what's out there, there's a bunch of stuff on things like creativity and GPA or creativity and work performance, and there's a link, but the problem I mean, being really honest is it's not a super convincing. I mean, it, it's there. But if you want your kid to get better grades or to do better on the SATs, your first thought or second thought or 15th thought is not going to be, I need to make sure my kid's create." If I wanted my kids to do better in school, there's no hypothetical children I need to think about. I would not be thinking I must get them to be more creative. I mean, in part, I can't get them to do anything as it is. But, you know, that would be when, OK, well, I would try to get them to be more conscientious or work on their study skills or whatever. I wrote a target article for major Karwowski's journal, Creativity Theory Applications and Research. It's just a great online journal. And there were a bunch of responses. And it was interesting because, like, there were some responses that pointed out, well, Big C is there. And that's absolutely true. I mean, nobody argues What's the point of creative genius? That's not something nobody's ever had to defend genius. And and Dean Simonton wrote kind of a beautiful response where he pointed this out and no arguments. And pro-C, you know, talking about, well, the people who are creative at their jobs, people tend not to uh, doubt that too much. Although, conversely, even that people push back against. There's more of an anti-creativity biased than one might think. I don't think it's profound. But like while I was writing the book, I read a fantastic study where they analyzed the speeches that the CEOs would give to their shareholders. And they found that whenever they would talk about things like innovation or change or creativity, long-term profits would go up. But over the next month, the shareholders would drop this, would dump the stock. So we say we want creativity, but do we want it? Do we even know what it is? I mean, there's been all these studies about do people know what creativity is? And often they will use teachers and usually be like, aha, teachers don't know what creativity is. But it's not like anybody is any better. A lot of times when we say we want creativity, we mean we want a little bit of creativity within what we already know. Or we want somebody to creatively figure out how to do exactly what I tell them cheaper and faster. So I began thinking, well, what are the good other benefits of creativity. And I've been very interested in the mental health issue, in part kind of as a mea culpa, because about, oh, Lord, over 20 years ago, I did a study called the Sylvia Plath Effect. It was a little tiny, it wasn't tiny, it was historiometric, so a ton of people. But it was just looking, oh, among famous writers, look, female poets are more likely to show signs of mental illness compared to other writers. And it kind of got blown out of proportion, and it will probably still be the main thing people would ever associate with me, which is kind of depressing. But I began noticing the flip side then. Okay, well, you have the work of James Pennebaker and his colleagues who talk about the writing cure and how the narrative has all this power to do all this physical and psychological health benefits. There's a whole line of research that started out of Ellen Winner's lab, where at first it was just, well, does art therapy work? And yes, it does. Tra- you know, tracing is not as good as drawing. But then they're like, OK, well, let's see which is better. Is it better if you draw something that is expressing yourself? And usually they would make somebody feel sad or angry. And they would so either have them draw about these feelings or just draw something fun that makes you happy. And as I was reading the article, I'm like, oh, well, of course, expressing and venting will do better and that's more healthy. And, you know, with therapy, you should go and spill your guts. And nope, it turns out art helps because it makes you feel good. And then Jen Drake has done all of these great studies showing that distraction is kind of wonderful. So, yeah, if you do something where you make a little drawing, you write something, you, Play a little music. Yeah, it makes you feel better. And you're not thinking about the world being a trash can fire. And you feel better about life for a few minutes. And you know what? That's okay.
2: Speaking of the healing chapter, which, which is what you're referring to, I, I really liked the piece on emotional equilibrium. And what I particularly loved, again, your humor, everyday blahs begging to be overcome because it wasn't just about trauma, but it was also about those small moments where you're just having a bad day. And it, it made me reflect on the teachers who listen to our podcast to say, like, how can they, James, use creativity to overcome those blahs? I
0: think there's a number of ways. Certainly, doing a creative activity that you enjoy, even briefly, distracts you, is enjoyable. But beyond that, I also think, for example, and I'm touching on some of the other chapters, if you're creative with people, I mean, co-creation can be very powerful. I know that you've had Vlad Glavineau on, and he does masterful work with this. But being creative together can connect you. I mean, seeing creative work makes you feel connected. You know, Jeff Smith and the museum effect, where when you're in an art museum, you just feel like you're a citizen of the world. And one of the things that I found very, very compelling as I was going through all this stuff, sometimes we can feel the blahs because we don't see the bigger picture. We don't necessarily see, why am I doing this? What's the point? And I got really into a lot of Robert Lifton's ideas who talked about this idea of symbolic immortality. I mean, all of us are going to die. About five years ago, I had a heart attack while I was changing planes, and it's not a coincidence that started me thinking about this stuff. But if we know we're going to die, how do we cope with that? How does that not go from daily blaws to existential devastation? And it's not just creativity, obviously. It's not like creativity is the only solution. There are many ways people handle this. One way is kids, mentoring, caring for kids, nurturing. Teaching them, all of that is, is passing your values, your ideas, your, your thoughts, your beliefs. Some people turn to religion and spirituality, some people turn to the idea of, of nature, of the planet Earth, or just the idea of things that have always been there. And then there's creativity at the big sea level, it's obvious. I mean, we still know the name William Shakespeare, he's been dead for many, many, many years. We still Know all of these past creators, artists, scientists, inventors, all these people who've lived on. But it's not just Big C. It can be what is sometimes called a hero project where you're pro C, but you're working on a larger thing. I mean, if you think about it, just if you drive down the center of where you live on the main street, you'll see all sorts of buildings and you have the architect who designed it. You have the people who actually built it. There are so many people who we may not remember, but whose contributions are still impactful. There are so many people who the average person doesn't know them, but people in the field do. So it's that being part of something. But even beyond that, creativity can be this legacy that lives on. The example that I give probably too much at this point is. My grandma Blanche later in life got into painting. I have no idea if she was good or not. I'm not good at that stuff. Probably she was not incredible, but she painted pretty flowers and I was close to her. And after she passed away, I got two of the nice paintings of flowers and they are hanging in my living room. It's nice. Like I see it and would I love these paintings if I picked them up at a thrift store? It is that connection, but it's that way where a memoir, scrapbooking, family recipes, there are all these things that we can pass on no matter what our creativity level is, where our loved ones will care. Do you want
1: to bring more creative and critical thinking into your school? Look no further than our podcast sponsor, curiosity to create
2: curiosity to create is a nonprofit organization dedicated to engaging professional development for school districts and empowering educators through online courses and personal coaching
1: and if you're craving a community of creative educators who love new ideas don't miss out on their creative thinking network get access to monthly webinars creative lesson plans and a supportive community all focused on fostering creativity in the classroom
2: To learn more, check out curiositytocreate.org or check out the links in the show notes for this episode.
1: I loved that, James. And I I, I remember speaking a little bit about that and sharing the story of my grandfather who had a sense of purpose after he discovered his painting and, and to a certain extent his painting skills after he retired from his work in coal. He was a coal miner. Now, what I do want to do is kind of bring this into the, the classroom environment a little bit. When I was reading this section of the book, I found myself making a connection to some of my students, particularly the first year students who are trying to like find out what concentration they should be doing in our major. And I think a lot of educators probably can relate to, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what degree I want to I pursue. I don't know what school I want to go to. And to a certain extent, there's this feeling of not always knowing your future. And so I wanted to kind of share that with you and see if you had any advice for educators who might want to try and help students in a similar situation identify meaning in what they're doing with their everyday activities. Because of course, some of the activities we're getting them to do in a traditional K through 12 setting, they might not necessarily
0: find meaning. Reflect, write about, think about, if you want to have them more looking forward, think about different possibilities of a career. What do they want, both from the end goal, but also the process? What are they willing to do? How does that dovetail with their interests, with their passions? Because certainly when I teach UConn students, and there's a very wide range where some people are majoring in something they are passionate about and they're doing it because they love it. And you have a lot of people who are pursuing something because it will get them a job and it will make them money. And that's totally understandable too. Some of the work that I really like is by Michael Pratt. And he calls it work orientation, but I don't want that to scare off people who aren't in business because I think it applies to almost anything where the idea is why do people have the job they have? But I think you could swap that out for a lot of things. There's one that he calls job. And that's one of those, I need money and so I work. So job orientation is basically, well, I have this job and I need to make money, but at the student level, that's, well, I am going to class because that is what I have to do. I want to get good grades because that's why I'm going to class. It's a very direct path. There's career orientation, which is more about advancement, and that's more the kids who want to do well for advancement purposes. So I want to get into the honors class. I want to get into the AP classes because I have my heart set on this college and I know I'll need the extracurriculars, et cetera, et cetera. There's calling your service. And that's where you feel that passion about what you want to do. It's not necessarily the process of doing it, but the goal. So that's the students who volunteer at the animal shelter on weekends, or who are trying to Work on saving the environment and get the school to reduce the carbon emissions. The actual activities may not be enjoyable, but they believe in this deeply. There's kinship in the workforce that's the reason why I like my job or tolerate my job is I like the people I work with. And that's the, and I think that's an awful lot of students. They like being around their fellow students, and that's the main draw of school. You have craftsmanship in the workforce that's I want to improve, refine my skills, get better. And that's the one I think you will see a little less of in the classroom. But certainly there are there are the students who want to improve and get better that are not worried at all about grades. I mean, I think often that can tie. I think that in the classroom that might blend a little bit with some other stuff. And then there's passion. That's I love the actual stuff that I do. I think this is also related ultimately to identity. Who do we see that we are? Who do we want to be? I think all of this stuff, it ties into motivation, identity, coherence. And again, like a lot of this stuff, it's not just creativity, but it certainly is very interwoven.
2: So we need to wrap up. Unfortunately, I think we could talk with you all day. I know I could talk to you all day about this book because I have so many questions still But I do want to come to the question that we ask all of our guests, and you have answered this question before, but I'd really like you to answer this question in the context of your book, The Creativity Advantage. So what are three tips that you would give educators to bring creativity into the classroom based on what you've discovered in writing this book?
0: When I was writing the first part, which was, in my mind, kind of like a little mini Creativity One Hundred and One it ended up being much more thematically linked than I really thought it would be. And I realized the connective thing that linked all my theories in a sense is trying to expand what we think of as creativity. So not in the way of like in the Incredibles where the mom says everybody's special and then Dash says, that means nobody is. I don't mean everybody's creative, yay. But rather we don't recognize them. Whether it's because somebody's creative in a weird domain, whether it's because somebody doesn't understand or acknowledge the concept of mini C. Whether it's somebody is creative in a way that isn't obviously original, it's still creative and it still counts. It's why one of my little pet peeves is when popular articles or books use creativity and genius interchangeably. They're not the same. We aren't geniuses. Not everybody can be a genius. You can't just tap into your inner genius. That's kind of crap. But all of us can be creative. All of us can tap into our inner Creator. That would be one thing. Another thing would be to recognize that although we have so many of these kind of stereotypes of the mad genius, creativity, and mental illness, or just creative kids being a panty ass, which honestly they can be, it is actually much more associated with positive mental health than negative mental health. And when we're talking in the classroom, little C, mini C, you just you don't really find that negative stuff and that seeing creativity as not necessarily just the outcome or the end goal but also the benefit of the process the, the positive personal things that come when somebody's creative and the third would be connected to two, to the first two in a sense that even when things are so often prescriptive or constrained or you must teach this material on this day in this way There are still these small little ways of being creative within the box. That's why I hate the thinking outside the box, because thinking within the box is so much harder and yet so much more important in many ways. And being creative in these small little ways that still reach the end goal and can go under the radar of any administrators who who don't like it, it's still possible and it's still
1: worth it. Well, James, thank you so much for coming back to the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here and um, hopefully we'll can have you again on the show, possibly next year. For, for teachers out there, I do want to do a plug for The Creativity Advantage because I thought it was a great book. Cindy's referenced the humor that, that you've added to the book as well, James. But I thought you did a really good balance between sharing the knowledge that exists from from the academic field of creativity, but then also offering that kind of creativity 101 approach as well, particularly in the first part of the book. So I think it's a great book for teachers who, are enjoying this show but haven't had the opportunity to dig deeper into the field of creativity so a huge plug to the book i think it's fantastic and as always if you've got any questions for myself james cindy please reach out to us on questions at fuelingcreativitypodcast.com my name is dr matthew warwood
2: and my name is dr cindy burnett this podcast was produced by matthew warwood and cindy burnett The episode was sponsored by Curiosity to Create.